Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. I'm your host, Alex Banco. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor, Point Click Care. They know financial help is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Visit www.pointclickcare.com to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. As president and CEO of the PDPM-focused consulting firm JMD Healthcare Solutions, John De Los Santos has had a front-row seat to the Medicare payment changes that swept the industry late last year. But despite positive reports of per-day payment boosts, the jury remains out on whether the model will be a long-term headwind or tailwind for skilled nursing operators, especially since we still have only a small sample size of data to analyze. I wanted to learn more about the -the on-the-ground challenges and opportunities that he's seen since October 1st, and perhaps tease out some strategies for success that may have eluded some providers so far. Here's our conversation. Hey, John, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. I, I really um, look forward to it. Yeah. So let's just dive right in here. Before I get to start asking some specific PDPM questions, just want to give you the opportunity to kind of give the uh, you know, one-minute pitch about what your company is, how big your reach is, and what kind of services you provide, and then we'll go right into the PDPM meet. Sure. We're a new company. I'm a, what are we? We're a skills management service that brings together and tries to realign the rehab services with the MDS. So kind of what it came down to is we put together a person that is going to be both a seasoned regional manager for therapy services, a RAC certified MDS um, expert, and also had a, an additional training in ICD-10 coding. So, you know, what they can do is we go in, we um, help effectively run the rehab department all the while lining the new components under PDPM and ensuring that things are first of all, coded correctly. Second of all, that all those components are being covered by the services we're delivering. And it's been getting, you know, really good, really good results. People are really feel secure with it. Great. And how many, how many buildings are you in right now? Uh, currently, we're just getting started here. We're uh, talking to a big group next week, but we're only doing uh, about 10 to 15 buildings now. We have a couple of different levels of service. One is an auditing service that will be after the fact and then one is more real-time management, which would be uh, more effective on their current payment. Gotcha. So let's just dive in right into what you're seeing with PDPM. Obviously, we're about four months in now. A lot of the early returns, at least on some of the analyses, have been showing you know per-day rates are higher. Are you seeing that in your practice? Are you seeing, is it high? Are the rates coming in as high as you expected, a little lower, a little higher? Kind of, what's your early read on the first couple months of overseeing payments come in? Well, they are a little higher, and that's been, you know, commonly known. And I think one of the reasons that is a result is because of the increased focus on the MDS. I think when Medicare put out their crosswalk and they were converting, you know, what rugs was to what kind of the MDS would be, just the, the, the more attention every one of these pieces are getting has made them a little more accurate maybe than they, that they were in the past. But I think that's going to level out. I think what we're seeing as a result of that is what people have to remember is that this is still a type of prospective payment. So if you capture all these conditions or components, there's also a whole other piece that you have to make sure all these things are followed up on. And that's what we're starting to, people are starting to get a little more worried about now. It's like, okay, well, we captured all these great scores and we're getting these great payments. But what happens when this gets looked at? Are all these things completely justified in what we're doing? And that's where we come in handy because we're trying to level these two things out. And I think, like everyone said, we've had seen some coding errors just because of the, the kind of how people were thrown right into this, especially some of the 
therapy departments were thrown in to assist with coding, and and now we're finally starting to see a few of the errors that are popping up. Yeah, what are some of the more common errors in terms of you know maybe missed payment opportunities or maybe people putting in payments that they might not be justified? Are there any sort of common themes we're seeing so far? The most common things we're seeing for missed opportunity would be more on the ICD-10 coding. Some of the non-therapy ancillary services are being missed. Some of the comorbidities are, are being missed. They're feeling good about finding that one diagnosis that fits in that one category, and then they move on right away. There are certain major group categories that actually, based upon other parts of the MDS, can actually have a different payment. And some of those things get kind of looked over a little bit faster. ICD-10 coding can be pretty tricky. And some of the biggest things we're seeing that is going to be an issue in the future is, believe it or not, the Section GG still not being coded. And I don't necessarily, I'm a therapist myself, so I don't blame therapy because some of the, there's a translation issue here with some of the, the wording and how the, on the functional levels are worded. And I think there's some confusion with the therapy teams about what is what as far as therapy documentation goes and MDS documentation goes. There is definitely a disconnect on some of the levels of function causing some both inflated payment and a lowered payment. As you know, each one can be a different piece of that. So that's where we're seeing the most errors right now, section GG and the translation issue. Yeah, and I know that that was sort of uh, section GG has kind of emerged uh, as a big topic, especially with section G going away. But it's interesting that you bring up ICD-10 coding because there was sort of, uh, I remember there being like two big schools of thought uh, right during the run-up to PDPM. There were some people who were saying, you need to be, you need to know ICD-10 chapter and verse. you got to train your people. you got to make sure that they know uh, the whole system inside out. And then we had other voices saying, well, you know, you should know what these codes are and maybe you should have one person, but it's not going to be vital to success, especially I think a lot of operators looked at it and thought, you know, 22,000 codes or whatever, there's no way we're going to get mm-hmm. up to speed on this. So it's interesting to hear you say that ICD-10, ICD-10 coding is emerging as kind of an area where operators can improve, because I wasn't really expecting to hear that. Well, no, it, it definitely is. And I'm not saying you need to hire a, a coder. I, I don't know if it's at that level, but you definitely have to have someone who has the ability to use a coding book, make sure they get to those seventh characters if required, because a few of these minor changes, in, in, and like I said, after the major category, a few of the minor changes in other sections with some diagnoses that they didn't code could have effectively made that payment a little bit better. And when we're saying effectively, we're talking about, you know, $20, $30 a day, but over the course of a year, you know, if it affects 20 patients, 20 30 bucks a day, I mean, that's a, that's a significant difference, you know, at the end of that year. Yeah, exactly. That has sort of been one of the, the other overarching themes on this is that a lot of these things, when you put, when you look at it in isolation, like, oh, you're leaving $10 a day on the table or you're leaving $20 a day on the table. It doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, especially in this landscape, especially with all the threats to Medicaid, you know, every dollar does count on the Medicare side. Right. Right. And you're talking about buildings that may carry 15 to 20 med days. And, uh, you know, with the average length of stay being you know, around that 17, 18 a day range, and this is every day, yeah, it, it adds up. And trust me, they would love to have that extra revenue. And they deserve it. You know, they should get everything they deserve. And that's what has been our model the whole time. You know, look, we're not trying to do anything here to uh, get you more payment. We're trying to get you what you deserve. These are the rules, and there are a lot of them, and it's new. And having this therapy mind and the MDS mind together is really pulling up some good opportunities for some facilities. And I kind of want to hit on the perspective part, you know, sort of the worries about what's going to happen, you know, as CMS starts to look at this data, because 
So far, all the news has been really good. And I was actually uh, just recently at a conference out in California for a lot of investors who are interested in the skilled nursing and senior living space. And they all come up to me and say, oh, PDPM, it's great. Everybody's making more money. This is good. This is good. And I kind of had to be the one to put the brakes on it and say, well, yes, it's good in the short term, but the fear is that it's going to be too good <laughs> and that it's going to be, it's going to represent too much of a shift for CMS to ignore. So I, I wanted to know what was your, you know, what's your kind of general take on, you know, when do you think we'll start to see adjustments from CMS? Are there any particular areas that you think are going to throw up some red flags that operators should really be concerned about when they start to assess their first three or four months of PDPM results? Yeah, I do. And I, and I, I still want to remind everybody that even though therapy minutes don't directly generate the rug anymore and, and they kind of got that monkey off their back, they still represent half of the components for payments. So therapy is still a big thing they're going to be looking at. And, and they always have been mentioning this the whole time. We're watching the minutes. Don't go way over. Don't go way under. We want to be around the same. And, and that was for a reason because it is a big part of this. And I think the biggest liability it's going to lay out there is that when you capture all these great component scores for therapy, and then they go back and they start digging through your documentation, and maybe some of these goals weren't even, or some of these areas weren't even addressed by goal by your therapy team, you know, and we've seen this before. We've seen certain components being scored a certain way that that affects reimbursement, and I go to the eval, and it's not even a goal that OT or PT are even working on. So what that's going to come down to, I think for for Medicare, it's going to be really easy for them to review this and say, huh, look at this. We got all this payment for these areas. These areas don't even really seem to be addressed on your end. We're not going to, we're going to, we're going to take that back now. What's your defense? I mean, at least in the previous way under rugs, you had a fighting chance because it was the minutes you delivered and you got to try to justify why those minutes were important. But if you didn't address a component that was paid to you, I don't know how you defend that. You really can't. And it's going to be a lot easier for them as far as not even having an appeal process for some of these issues that come up. But it's going to be really easy for them to recoup some of those payments that they've been paying out that seem really nice now, but they're going to see as being overinflated. What can operators do now, you know, if they're looking at their first two or three months and, you know, maybe they're seeing some gaps in the documentation, in the justification? Is there anything that they can do now to kind of potentially head off those problems from CMS in a couple months? I believe there is, and I believe it starts with, again, with a lot, how a lot of the improvement starts in our industry is getting, getting good quality audits that come with resolutions to the issues that they're seeing. And, and one of those will be making sure that your therapy services that are being delivered are in alignment with your payment components and what you receive for these for those components. I think, you know, MDS and therapy, you know, sometimes they live in separate worlds for a while. And yeah, they might be doing their eval and doing a great job in, in therapy. And then also the MDS coordinator is doing a great job in coding. But do they ever come together and make sure what this eval is reflecting is the same patient that your MDS reflects? Because it needs to be. Because that MDS is going to be the tool that they're going to be reviewing and assuming is the patient. And if it doesn't match the picture that therapy painted of them on their evals and their treatment, uh, there's going to be a disconnect there. And I can tell you, they're not going to want to you know, pay, for, pay, pay for those things. And I think this is, they had this kind of thought out before they did this. So if they can make sure that their payment components and those issues that they identify in them, even with the levels of function, is being addressed properly in their therapy departments, it would be a really, really, really good start. Also, proper training for the therapy departments to make sure that they really do know how to code this or have someone else do it because it needs to be accurate. And that's going to be a key. 
And I, and I know that it sounds, the training part sounds really obvious, but I've spoken to some therapists just to kind of on the ground, just to kind of get their, just get their gauge on what kind of preparations we did, what do the preparations look like from their end? And one of them told me, you know, we didn't really hear much about it at all. <laughs> you know, it was sort of, <laughs> there wasn't a ton right. of information and then it just kind of happened. I agree. And, you know, one of the reasons is, well, first of all, it's a nursing assessment and I understand that. But if you're going to have a department assist with it, they got to know what they're doing, you know, especially with the interviews. Now, people look at these questions and they seem simple in nature, like, well, these are very simple questions, you know, and how can you really screw that up? But you, well, if they were that simple, the RAA manual wouldn't be 1300 pages long. It's very thought out on how these are supposed to be administered and how they are to be scored. And there's some scoring tricks that people don't know. Like if someone's ever scored as a two-person assist, they must be dependent. And then, yes, I've caught people doing this constantly ever since the start in therapy departments. No one even knew that. It wasn't explained well enough to them. And if it was, it was too quick. You know what I mean? It was like a webinar and it was 20 minutes and they went through it and maybe it's in there and they can justify that. And that's great. But it doesn't mean much if your therapy team doesn't remember what, what they got trained. I mean, you, you really got to follow through and make sure they got it and they got it correct. Yeah. Before we started recording, you had mentioned uh, to me that there were some things that you did expect, some things you didn't expect when you looked at PDPM. I want to focus a little more on the things you didn't expect. You know, what are some outcomes or some early things that you're hearing that maybe weren't, you know, weren't a key area of your focus while you were preparing for PDPM and kind of thinking about the changes? What, what were some of the big surprises? One of my biggest surprises was the reaction of some of the therapy companies in the uh, massive loss of, of staffing hours before they even got a chance to get in there and really see what the what it, how it was going to work, I guess, at the facility level. I was surprised that there was so much reduction and increased uh, focus on staffing departments being even more efficient because of the added pieces that were going to come in there, you know, under their department with the MDS. I, I thought that was a little strange. I thought it was a little bit more reactive than, than I was anticipating. I'm also a little bit surprised of what we just talked about, the lack of being prepared. I mean, how long have we been talking about this? A long time. <laughs> so to not have your uh, therapy departments completely prepared to do some of these MDS and some of these coding, and not just therapy. I, I shouldn't be picking on therapy. Uh, there were some facilities that I've talked to, even after October, where they were just looking into making sure, okay, well, now which ones of these are, are responsible for reimbursement now? Um, some people were not completely prepared for this being such of a huge change it was. I thought there'd be a little bit more readiness for it. And I think those are the two major things that I was I was pretty surprised about. Yeah, I mean, you and me both, um, especially on the first issue of the staffing changes, I sort of knew that it was going to happen. You know, the whole, the whole all you heard from CMS is, you know, we think that you're providing too much therapy. We don't want minutes mm -hmm. to be linked to therapy anymore. And uh, that was especially talking to some analysts who cover the public markets and who cover the, the publicly traded REITs that own nursing homes. They had all said, yeah, we're expecting some layoffs and, so I, I didn't think that that was going, you know, I didn't think that, that wasn't going to happen, but just the speed that it happened, you know, October 1st, October 2nd, all of a sudden my inbox started filling with emails from <laughs> therapists who were saying, what just happened? You know, I got laid off. I've been working at these buildings for X amount of years and we knew this was coming, but all of a sudden I don't have a job anymore. My hours were cut in half and I was blindsided by that. I didn't think, I thought it would take at least two to three months, you know, or maybe even a couple of quarters of results before the companies really started to buckle down and say, okay, can we cut staff? You know, can we cut top line 
staff, but uh, it was shocking to me how quickly it happened. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And especially since, like we just discussed at the beginning of this, some of these, these payments have gone up. And as you know, most of the contract therapy companies, they take percentages of, you know, the, the, the revenue as they should. It's a partnership. And I understand that. But you're right. I'm surprised they didn't wait a little longer to see what the outcome was going to be before they started to make readjustments like they have. So, I, I, and I think that had a really poor view. The therapist obviously had a poor view of that. The facilities, you know, and, and it's not, let's not be, you know, blinded by, you know, patients and family members, they, they hear all this stuff about our industry too. And, and to, you know, to give a, a reputation of cuts come before anything else. I, I don't know. I just wanted to make sure that our patients and our clients, you know, didn't get a, a bad impression of, of that either. Because that, that was, oh, that was a surprise didn't see that one coming at least to that level yeah i mean obviously it did make it, it did make the national news which of course i also thought was a little funny too because a lot of national news outlets for many years have been focusing on the over provision of therapy and you know the wall street <laughs> journal did a really big dive into it and that was a problem in a lot of facilities but it was it, it just shows you how you know the public perception of the industry can change very quickly and it's not necessarily based on you know it's not necessarily based on all the decades of knowledge that people in the industry have. It just shows all when you hear nursing homes are laying off therapists at the time when America is getting older, you're right. It's not a good look. And even if you don't have all the backstory for it, what matters is what you see in the paper. And it's not necessarily exactly. a good look right away. Yeah. Right. Um, Perception's everything. So it's a be- that was perceived not good. <laughs> when do you think, you know, I like to ask this question. Uh, when do you think we're going to start to see, you know, that we can really make kind of a sweeping declaration about whether PDPM is a good thing or a bad thing or whether or not it's working as intended. You know, obviously, we're still early days. And in my coverage, I'm trying not to make big sweeping declarations about, yes, it's good or yes, it's bad. How long do you think we're really going to take to, you know, play around in the new system, see where all the numbers come in, and then really be able to make a decision or really be able to make a uh, cast an opinion over whether or not this is working as intended? You know, just by the way billing processes go in facilities and, you know, then, then we got the auditing process, then Medicare is going to come in and they're going to do their probes and additional documentation requests. I w- it's going to take us, I would say, a year, really, to figure out and let this level out, let the staffing level out. I think some of the therapy companies may, the ones that overreacted, will bring staff back. I definitely believe that. I think the care still needs to be delivered, but I think it's going to take that year, of, you know, get a couple quarters in the books and then a couple quarters with your adjustments will end up probably being, you know, around a 12 month period to really assess this and really feel good about where you're headed with it and that you got the right plan in place. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the most important things to remember as well is that, uh, at least it's my opinion that I think you should look at PDPM as a stepping stone to whatever is coming next from the federal government, especially as we're hearing more about what's going on with PDGM over on the home health side. You know, they're kind of going through a lot of the similar growing pains and issues that PDPM did. And it's kind of funny watching it, you know, here at uh, Skilled Nursing News, we have a sister publication, Home Healthcare News. And it's funny kind of reading that and seeing everything we were writing about for PDPM just about three months later for PDGM in terms of concerns about layoffs and concerns about coding and getting proper payments. But I, I think that's at least my opinion. It's a, it's a, it's important to look at PDPM as yes, there's short term benefits and short term challenges, but it's really, you should really look at it as this is step one toward 
maybe getting to one of those unified payment models that everyone talks about. I agree. And there's, you know, with the advancement in technology and with the advancement and and our ability to communicate with other parts of the industry, I I think that's a good possibility. That's where they're trying to head with this and and make really make it a clinically based payment system and, you know, reward those with the great outcomes. And and that's what, you know, that's the right way to do it. I mean, yeah. It was a pretty good plan. I, I agreed with it when it first came out. And I think getting to figure it all out and making sure that there aren't those overreactions and that making sure, number one, that the patients always get, you know, what they deserve, regardless of the payment model. And, you know, that's still under assessment just because of the way people react to change. And, and this was a big change. Like, uh, you know, 20 years has been the latest, you know, thing like this to happen. So I, I think, again, if you're a year of leveling it out and then those minor adjustments, like you say, I think it's heading in the right direction. All right. And I think that's a good place as any to stop. Get always like to end with a little optimism about uh, things heading in the right direction, especially in this industry. But uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, right. appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Take care. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.